Hi, you're listening to your Route to Wellbeing podcast. This podcast shares strategies, insights, nuggets, and tools to inspire and support you as you step boldly towards creating the well-being that you desire and deserve. Each week, I share insights and inspiration from different people who have expertise across one or more of the 11 domains of well-being. Each one of the guests that I've chosen to talk to have found the clues through their lives and experiences, through their careers and their knowledge, that I want you to have access to. My big question is how can we all pulse with energy and truly live while we're alive? I believe that these people that I'm talking to have some of the crucial answers. So relax, listen up, and thank you for tuning in. Please remember to leave us a review and also to share this podcast with anyone in your network who you think it may help. Hi, I'm Sue Fullergood from the Energy Incubator, and I am so excited to have today with me Dr. David Butler, who has made an enormous impression on my life from way back when, when I first, first graduated, and I read one of his books. I've read all of his many books, and it really changed the way I thought about things, and it really started to create some new ideas for me. And so he's been one of those gurus for me who've um, influenced my thinking and uh, who've also who's also just been a constant source of inspiration. And a few years ago, I was lucky to go to Australia to the Noi conference. Uh, which he put together, together with his amazing team. NOI stands for the Neuro Orthopedic Institute. And that conference was just a real furtherance of all that you'd started developing in my brain. So I'm really, really grateful to you. And I'm so excited to be able to download some of those ideas from you for my listeners. So uh, without further ado, I'd love to um, ask you to take the microphone, David, and Share with us a little bit about you, whatever you think that the listeners need to know, other than that you are super duper. <laughs> oh, gosh. Thank you, Sue. And thanks for that lovely, lovely introduction. I'm blushing a, blushing a little bit here and here. And, and hello to everybody in South Africa. And thanks for joining. Thanks for joining in. Yes, well, I'm a physio, I guess. Uh, I do teaching and some research and... Uh, I'm trying to retire, but I can't let the patients go. So I'm still seeing still seeing some patients. Um, I used to be an old backcracker. I used to do a lot of uh, heavy manual work, and I still do some with, with patients, but I'm more of an educationalist now because um, I've been blessed or, or, or been able to link into what we call the pain revolution, which is this massive new amount of, of knowledge that really in the last... 20 years has revolutionized um, how we manage or how we think about people with pain or chronic pain, stress, um, anxiety, fatigue. So, um, uh, and I, I can't quite stop. I don't want to retire because all this lovely new stuff's coming out. And, and uh, if I had to say one thing, my um, expectations of outcome with people now is is lifting all the time and I think that's because we're aware of how changeable we we humans can be um, and also there's some wonderful clinical trials now showing that that quality um, treating 
um, can help. And that's essentially knowledge and a combination of movement and environmental change. So I'm still in the game. Yay that you are. And uh, and you haven't given us much insight, so I'm just going to you know start the ball rolling for that part of the sure. conversation into your um, amazing, illustrious career. I mean, you do, you are a physiotherapist and you're so much more. I know you're an associate professor or, yeah? Yes, so, I'm an associate professor at the, at the university here. So I, I combine the professional life of... Um, of um of research I, I have some some students i do a little bit of research myself i i treat patients i i write i love to write um, um books i have a particular interest in chronic pain in rural areas um I, I suspect it's like that in south africa but people in rural areas here have more pain than people in the city areas and they're left out to to um to some degree, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So that's essentially me. I like to go fishing. Um, <laughs> I like to go walking and wandering around. I like drinking wine. Um, I'm a generally happy chap. <laughs> that you are. I remember going uh, for a walk in the forest with you to see the koala bears when I came to uh, South Australia and. Uh, yeah, I know you love nature. Yeah. So, it, well, that's a, I, the project I'm working on now at the moment. I'm particularly interested in gardening and gardening as as a therapy, um, and, and particularly, um, you know, as a lifestyle change. We've become so disconnected from nature, I believe, and and all of the science and the data is showing that that um, there's much we can do or gain from the garden and gardening itself. And as we chat, I might sort of mention a few of these um, a few of these uh, things. So I give talks to sort of rural areas and garden clubs about you know using this wonderful thing you've got in front of you for your own health. I love that because uh, my whole philosophy around well-being is it's so many factors that come together to build the skill of well-being and uh, you know we, we we can't expect it to be just one multi uh, unifaceted it's really is a multifaceted thing and oh, so that's so important and and listeners I think um for for me one of the things that really changed my thinking was when the first brain scans came out of people in pain and we oldies always used to think that you kind of had a pain area up here that kind of lit up when you're in pain but the whole brain essentially lights up you know people used to say you only use 10 percent of it but that's that's bullshit if i can swear on your on your podcast <laughs> You know, we use the whole brain and and what that means, it's a very liberating thing because it means that everything matters in a pain or a fatigue or an anxiety construction. And if everything matters, then there's so many things that you can do for it. So many things you can do for it to be to begin to unlock it. And uh, yeah, I think that's important. I, I love that. And and I think, unfortunately, so many people today are living lives stuck behind their computer screens, hardly moving, 
not taking in any of the beautiful sunshine outside, if they're lucky enough to have it, or the fresh air outside, if they're lucky enough to have that. And so they are literally turning themselves into robots. And, and I just think that's so disastrous for our health. So can you tell us a little bit more? Around, yeah, sorry, go for it. Yes, I, I've just only read today that 33% um, of Australians only get into green areas for two hours a week, you know, and I thought, and I was thinking to myself, well, what's happening in places like Hong Kong and uh, <laughs> in the Netherlands, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Shame. Sorry. No, no, that's exactly. So, so maybe we just start our conversation there, really. And and how how do you see um, health and pain and stress and anxiety? Let's just lump them together um, for one moment um, within lifestyle. How, uh, can you talk a little bit to that and, and um, share your thoughts on yeah. what really brings well-being? Yes, and um, even just to go back um, a step um, to, to, I just want to also say that um, we can talk about this, but there are these, what are called the missed groups out there, and some of the missed groups who we're trying to join into this pain revolution that we'll talk about are, for example, people who've had a stroke. So, for example, one in four or five of us will have a stroke and 70% of us will have pain, but it is just not accepted. It's swept under the carpet. That's got to change. Young people with pain. You know, the evidence is if you have a problem when you're 13 or 14, you're highly likely to take it into your 20s. We've got to do more for these people. Old people too. Old people are left sort of rattling on drugs and pills in, in, in sort of nursing homes and they're left out of their whole equation. So, you know, I'd like to think this discussion is more for this wider, wider group as well to bring them in. Absolutely. And so you asked about lumping things together. And this is really important too, I think, because we would see pain as what we call an output of the body. Right? It's not something which goes in. And this is often a hard thing for people to, to get. If I pinch myself, right, all that's going in is messages saying danger in the thumb. It's up for the brain then to judge everything and work out whether it's worth making pain. So if I pinch myself and I'm laughing or doing something else, it might not hurt. Right? So this is a <clears throat> this is a really, really key thing. And we need to say pain is ultimately in the body, particularly in the brain, but also powerfully affected by the world we live in. Now, we also lump pain as an output of the brain, pain, fatigue, anxiety. All of these feelings are essentially what we call outputs of the brain and the body. They're outputs. And they're essentially protective things. So pain's essentially a protector. Yeah, it helps us through life. It, it sort of makes us adapt. It makes us change behaviors. It's really a good thing. You don't want to get rid of it completely. But what happens then people over time have this process where they simply make too much pain over protection and our bodies and brains change. And that overprotection is what we have to sort of draw back for many people. You can say the same for um, <clears throat> even when you're a bit depressed, you know, the blues are quite useful 
you know, you tend to retreat, you sort of store your energy and it's a good thing and it's quite protective, but then it gets into more a severe sort of depressive state where it becomes overprotective and you hide away sort of, you know, from society. So we, we look at these things like pain, fatigue, anxiety, you know, anxiety, a little bit of anxiety is good. It helps you get revved up and you can do an exam or you can go to an, in, an interview. It's good. But too much when it's turned on is obviously not helpful at all. So we look at these as outputs of the body and, and brain and very, very similar, very, very similar. They're overprotective, overprotective things. But we also believe we're getting much, much better at being able to unpack the things that are constructing this too much protection. And I'll talk about that about the dims and sims later. So I hope that made sense or some sense. Um, so. That made so much sense. And, uh, you know, I, I want to share with you right now. Oh, sorry, I'm... I um, had a really bad accident, uh, all my listeners will know about that, I've literally fell off the top of the mountain um, uh, 18 months ago and uh, it was really fascinating to see how um, understanding that my body was trying to protect me and understanding the need for that protection was what yeah. was going on for me. Um, so it was really interesting to be um, able to view the responses in my body with lots of fractured bones and damaged organs and what, what, what. Um, as my uh, you know brain knew it needed to protect me until yeah. such times it no longer needed to protect me. And when I could see the pain through that lens, it was really, really... Um, uh, helpful and and it diminished the threat value of the pain. I didn't feel so um, worried about it. I, I knew exactly yeah. what it was there, and I knew it would be transient, and I knew it would pass when it's when the need for it had gone away. Um, and and I must say, understanding that has been so useful to me. So I'm I'm really uh, grateful that you're sharing this information. Can you talk more about that protective function? Um, of the brain. Um, yes, I can talk for ages on the protective function. It is, it is essentially, it is essentially protective. I'll share my own little, little story here. I, I, I a little while ago <clears throat> started to get this pain in my back, and I didn't really know what was happening. It got worse and worse and worse. And finally, I realized I had a nerve root entrapped, my third nerve root, and that gives you pain above the knee. And um, and <clears throat> it got horrendous. I couldn't sleep. I was trying all sorts of pills and drugs and everything. And I have to say, the worst thing was I, I, I was walking out in the street and I collapsed in the street. Um, my leg was weak. And I have to say, <laughs> that to me was almost worse than the pain, the fact that I was on the ground and old and withered away. But anyway, <clears throat> over time it got better and uh, I avoided going to see any super specialists. I didn't want any operations or anything, but I kept thinking the things that kept me going are number one, I realized that this has to change sometime because pain is like anything in biology, it changes. And we also know 
that now the immune system comes into play when you have a painful state. And so many things affect the immune system, like what you eat, like what you think, like what you do. All of these things affect the immune system. So I was doing everything I could to make myself immune healthy. And then I was finally thinking, gosh, I know where the nerve comes out of the little outlet hole, the nerve only takes up a third of the space. So give it some time, let the swelling go, give it some time, keep even sort of wriggling the nerve and the thing will finally give. And <clears throat> it did finally give and I'm back to normal. But, but so the thing that really made me reflect is that I thought to myself, I'm not clever. I've just been lucky that I've been given or, or, or had access to this information that we're trying to share with so many so many people out there because I think tragically people when well, I get obviously terribly depressed or upset or they sort of rush and have surgery too early or inappropriate surgery whereas our bodies are remarkable healers in their own right particularly when it's powered up with knowledge and information and some support Absolutely. I mean, that was a, a that was something that I ran in my mind the whole time with after my accident is you're a healing machine. You're you're the healthiest person on the planet with the most extraordinary healing capacity. And this can heal itself. And and I do think that, you know, understanding that the body wants to heal itself and it wants to turn yeah. back to its great health. Um, yeah. With the right support, uh, yeah. you know, it's really an important thing to know. And and I think often patients and people suffering with pain or anxiety or stress forget that uh, their body is their supporter and and it, it you know wants to help them and wants to get yeah. them better. It's yeah. it's so it's so true. Is the word we use here is bioplastic. We are bioplastic, and we can change. Good time here to just to share some some information that um, from a clinical trial from our colleagues over here that's just been published um, they had 400 uh, patients with chronic pain who had either recovered or who had improved right and they asked these patients what were the things that you learned that really helped you the most so this for the listeners is, is actually to where sort of research is heading we're looking we're looking at the lived experience of, of patients out there. And it's interesting, I'll tell you the four or five things that patients thought were helpful. Knowing that pain protects us right, and can promote healing. So it's a good thing. You, you, you don't want to kill it, it's, it's okay. Secondly, that persisting pain overprotects us and prevents recovery. And out of the 400 people, they really like that. Okay, they get it, I'm making too much pain. How can I wind it back? The third thing was knowing, and we've talked about this already, that many factors influence pain. And that's linked into the brain scan. And the fourth thing was, therefore, there's many ways to reduce pain and, and retrain the pain system. Many ways. And that could be movement, thought, diet, food, language, a whole range of things that I presume we'll talk about in a moment. And there was a fifth thing was that, change is inevitable change is inevitable we can change and it's interesting this is in 400 people who were given um, a modern treatment of education and guidance to move and where possible change the environment i think it's a powerful study and um 
really yeah. nice to hear what patients think. Really nice to, and yeah, and that it made such a difference to them. You yeah. know, in South Africa, we have um, such security problems. And so one of the things that many of us who can afford to do is to put beams in our gardens. And uh, so if anybody should come near our houses, the beams will go off. But sometimes the sensitivity in the beams is set a little bit too low. And so even a dog or a cat or a bird could set it off. And then your sleep gets interrupted every five minutes because your alarm keeps on going off. And uh, I think, you know, the beams that we use to keep us uh, safe, safe in our houses is actually yes. a great measure for what the brain does around um, protecting us. Uh, you know, sometimes sensitivity is set just a bit too low. And, and so it, anything sets it off. Anything opposed, sets it off, yeah. yeah it's um, and it's, we, can, we can put that, change the sensitivity with time and education. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a beautiful talk today <laughs> so that we metaphor. can help know how to change the sensitivity of their beams. So, yeah. um, so we talk in, um, in medical circles about the biopsychosocial model. Um, can you um, share with us what you think about that, which basically means the person in the context of their lives? and the biology of their bodies and, bra and brains in the context of, of their social situation. Can you, can you um, share with us how that is relevant to um, people's health and to the experience, lived yeah, experience well, that they have? So you beautifully explained it there already, um, but it's, it's, it's been a fabulous model and is still the dominant model uh, now in the world of pain and, and pain, pain research. And just as it, it's actually a horrible word, isn't it? Biopsychosocial, it's hard to get your mouth around it. So, but we're stuck with, we're stuck with that. But what it's, what it's really done is made us, helped us look at something like pain in terms of these three categories, which are clearly, clearly um, overlink and, and overlap. So in a pain construction, there will be the biological elements which could be damage to your body or changes in the nerves in your central nervous system. Um, then we've got the psychological issues, which is um, could be fear of movement. It, it could be um, being left out of something or it could be a whole range of psychological things, um, shame even, disgust, a whole range of, of things. And then there's the social issues too, which is a, which is a bigger thing and which is where... I guess it's also part how society, what society thinks about pain and and, and who's paying for pain, pain, um, pain treatment. Um, so I, I used to, when I had uh, thinking sometimes with patients when I was working full time and you'd have patients coming in and, and, and you'd realize, oh, it's the afternoon and the last six people have told me the same bloody story. All right, and you realize it's not just a problem with that person, it's a problem in the in the bigger world. So these these um, three things have actually come come together, but they've helped us as we're building up this story to realize many things come and construct a pain experience, a fatigue experience, an anxiety experience. And those things could come from the biological world, the psychological world, and the social world. And all together. <laughs> and all yeah. together, yes. It, and it, inevitably, it will be all together. Absolutely. 
So, so um, in years gone by, I used to believe uh, alone. I was a lone ranger believing in the mind-body connection, and and I felt that everybody thought I was a woo-woo because I believed in that. But uh, nowadays, we understand much more um, uh, intimately that the mind and the body are linked together. Um, but somehow in medicine, there seems to still be an aversion to actually accepting that fact. Yes, yes, this is, um, it's still an aversion. Um, it's changing, it's changing slowly. Um, you know, when we tell patients stories, we always, nearly always, will always engage the brain in the story. I do have to say, though, it's become a bit easier to talk about brains uh, and and so and somebody sort of doesn't think oh you're saying it's all in my head um it's become easier there were people that used to get a bit concerned about that in the past and that was perhaps because we weren't so good at talking about um, brain stories or we didn't have the graphics or people hadn't been and found something on youtube or something so it, it has got easier to talk about to talk about the brain um and talk about the talk about the mind but it is absolutely clear now that we have to we have to um, talk about it it's a key key part of it and I think one thing that's that's helping that is um, what we call the immune revolution now so um, realizing listeners that that um, we always used to think it was just nerve cells in your brain but probably half to three quarters of your brain are immune cells. And basically your immune system is your big defender. It's a defending sort of a, a system. So it's up there, it's up there working and it's all little juices and immune systems. Every little nerve, every little synapse or nerve joining has got an immune cell, which kind of looks after it and kind of guides it, but it's a big defender. And it's obviously looking at if there's an infection or something else coming in and it will react, but it will also react to your thoughts and your feelings and your circumstances. So essentially what you're saying there, the, the idea of thought um, is really juice in your brain. Um, and it's become much easier to talk about um, the importance of thoughts and feelings and emotions as linked into pain experiences. Perhaps if I say that in another way, people used to think thoughts and feelings were something in the ether up here. But no, when you're thinking something, there's a juice in your there's a juice in your brain. They're very, very real. And I think uh, the mindfulness, if you want to call it revol revolution, has has helped people. Um, and, uh, you know, my listeners are very used to me talking about mindfulness, you know, paying attention to what those thoughts are. Um, and uh, that does drive you to understand that they are a construct within your within yourself. Um, and, and it helps you to pay attention to what those thoughts are. And then yeah. obviously to understand them, you know, by looking at them as an observer, to be able to look at those thoughts and realize that they may actually be harmful to you. That's right. And, and that's that's so right. Do it. And, and, you know, we're talking here about something we probably couldn't have spoken about five or six years ago. So, for example, if I was to say, if I had back pain, and I always said, I'm stuffed, all right? So I keep saying, if someone says, how are you? I'm stuffed. I'm stuffed. Well, when you say, I'm stuffed, 
there's a pattern in the brain of activity, <laughs> the I'm stuffed pattern. And the more you say it, the more those synapses hook in and put it in deeper and deeper and deeper into the brain. And it's almost, if you see a stuffed teddy bear, you might think I'm stuffed. It becomes so easy to turn, easy to turn on. But this is really at the at the cusp now of, of modern thinking about, um, about chronic pain management. And it's, I'm so pleased you're into mindfulness because we're now getting some wonderful science-based, neurologically-based strategies um, to treat this chronic pain. Mm. And did you notice I also said treat chronic pain, not manage chronic pain? And that's something I feel we've been able to say in the last five or six years, we've tried to change our language from manage pain to treat pain. And we can say that based on the basic science of how we know brains change, the plasticity in the brain. And we can also base that on the clinical trials, that if somebody wants to take on some knowledge and get moving and back into life, that recovery for many, but we're careful with that, could be on the cards, improvement on the cards. Pain is a biological thing like anything. Everything in biology changes. So we're trying to break out of this cop out sometimes of manage and move on. Let's, let's, see if, let's see if we can change it. Let's see if we can get you doing stuff that doesn't hurt quite as much or bug you as much. I just love that because really, especially having had this experience of mine, that powerlessness of feeling like you can't do anything to help yourself, uh, which I certainly felt right at the beginning after my accident, is is devastating and uh, it's it's so much nicer when you can feel that there's something you can do to help yourself and that that's right it's so much of it you do have agency over it within your own Correct. self and mind yeah. and uh, and that doesn't mean that you don't need help from outside as well but a lot of that help is helping you help yourself uh, rather that's... than hand your body to the doctor and the doctor will fix it but that's you know, right. medication will fix it. Yeah. Um, so yes, that's right. And again, it comes back to the the brain scans and that when you're in pain, there could be a thousand areas lit up in there, all sorts of things. You know, people that you things that you weren't even aware might have been contributing to your pain experience. Old memories, thoughts, you know, how you're going to manage in two weeks. So many things construct a pain experience, therefore, so many things can actually help it. Destructive, yeah. So I know you talk uh, uh, so much, and I love that about the the pharmacology uh, store within your own brain. Uh, can you share with us uh, some information about that? Okay, so we have in our brains. This is what I might try to say, somebody or in a group, if I can remember it. You have your own drug cabinet in your brain. It's in there between your ears right in the brain it's about as big as a walnut and that's a bit of brain that's actually your own drug cabinet now the trouble is people don't know much about it everyone can name the pain medications they get from a chemist can't they you know aspirin panadol they'll name them but they can't name the ones that their own brain makes and things like your brain can make stuff almost like morphine serotonin Right? All of these really good chemicals, which are actually can suppress impulses coming up. And listeners, the good thing about it is it's available 24 seven. 
You don't need a prescription. It's natural. You can even get it on Christmas Day when, when nothing else is open. This is your own pain medication, pain medication cabinet in your brain. And it's powerful. And listeners, you think, how powerful must that be? Because you've all heard stories, South Africa, in the rural environment, for example, people who've been injured in a farm and they say, it doesn't hurt. It didn't really hurt at the time. They've had severe injury, right? This system is really working to protect you. So it's bloody powerful. It loses a lot of its power in the city, unfortunately. But the key things are the thing that fires it up to, makes it, to make it powerful are what we call SIMS, safety in me. Things like knowledge, understanding, movement, exercise, diet change, all of these power it up. But the things that power it down, they don't give it any power. Therefore, more pain comes on, uh, fear, anxiety, not knowing, no networks, et cetera, et cetera. Being told sort of bullshit stuff, a whole range of, a whole range of things. So it's just good to know you've got it. And for those of you who might be changing medication, who might be trying to come down or titrate off some opioids or some pain medications, this is really good to know that you've, you're not left alone. You've still got this powerful system in your brain to take over. And that's powerful news for many. And that's not just for pain. That's for stress and anxiety. Absolutely. As well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. At any time I say um, pain, um, listeners, you could think of as stress, anxiety, um, depression, all of these feelings, all the feelings that our, our brains and bodies, our brains and bodies make. And, uh, and, and I loved what you said about how you can power it up um, and, uh, you know, almost get, get more of those chemicals pumping in your brain. Um, through exercise, healthy diet, um, enough sleep. movement, getting into nature, a whole range of a whole range of of things, and yeah, I'm I come back to nature a, a lot. I only read the other day that that thirty minutes of exactly the same exercise inside compared to thirty minutes of the same exercise out in green, out outside in the green far better blood pressure drops you feel better you get more out of it you know again it's this disconnect from nature that we were um, chatting about earlier so i'm saying here that nature the what we call the blue and the green prescriptions blue meaning get near some water or something if you can um green obviously in 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 the park or or a garden come into play so they come into play too in powering up this this um drug cabinet that you've got that we all have in our brains so now it can you know so often it's counterintuitive because you feel sore or anxious or depressed whatever it is and so you just want to uh, sort of huddle yourself down and right. jump into bed and, and or lie on the couch and watch tv and escape and and actually that's the worst thing you can do so it's almost like your brain throws up a suggestion which really doesn't help you instead yeah. of throwing up the suggestion of get out and move or yeah. be with people or you know get into nature and and so how do we work with that and uh, you know what can we do to counter this 
sort of natural way we harm ourselves, if you like, yeah, because we're that requires. I think that requires a little bit of a, um, a dig and a self-reflection from from some people. That apathy, I think apathy, um, you know, oh, I can't be bothered. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to stay here and roll up in a ball. I'm too painful, whatever. Apathy is often a cover for fear, I think. So that's fear of fear of movement, fear of of hurting myself more, fear of pain, fear of the neighbors thinking seeing me seeing me sort of hobble. So I think we can we can help this by trying to what we call unpack unpack the whole problem where we can. And that comes into the dims and into the dims and sims. There is also within that, and I bet you've spoken about this with your group many, many times, that most fundamental and most powerful piece of information that we can give people with chronic anxiety, chronic pain, is that your hurts will usually not harm you. That you can be sore, but you can be safe. That you can that you can you can ache without anguish, as somebody else told me the other day, which I really quite quite um, quite liked. And this is where we have a pain state, which is chronic. It's no longer driven by issues in the body. It's driven by memories, thoughts, feelings, a whole range of other of other issues. So I think that's a key thing. And, and for some people, it's just tempting. Come on, I want you just to to just to walk. Let's let's walk 50 meters. Let's give it a go. It, if it hurts a little bit, that's okay. That's okay. You won't harm it. Just try. See how you go yourself. And it's just this is slowly working, slowly challenging getting people into it. Even running's another thing. People in chronic pain never ever run. But I often use that as a bit of a shock to the system. They say, run, I'm not running, I haven't run for 30 years, I've got a back pain. I said, I'm only asking you to run to the back of your yard and back 20 metres, or give it a go. But once they do it, oh, I've run. It's a real, it's a real sort of challenge. So again, I, I guess I'm saying here, Sue, there's ways to shock the system too a little bit and, and really make somebody, somebody self-reflect. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, it, it, it seems like um, if you could own the fact that there is fear for you of maybe making yourself worse or of, uh, you know, landing up in a wheelchair or landing up um, crippled or whatever, then uh, you're less likely to do it. But when you remember that actually the system is overprotective and yeah. And, and there's too much protection going on for you. So you're not going to harm yourself with a little bit of movement. You could That's put right. your toe in the water, not necessarily go and run 10Ks, but just go and run a few steps and see what, yep. what the outcome is. I always say to people, give it 36 hours. Uh, you know, don't judge it after one hour. Let your bodies enjoy it and, and enjoy you know, see it. what happens. Body absorb it, enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. And so, on on that yeah. note, um, you probably shared this with many of your clients that there is one image in one of the books that we wrote, which gets far far more attention and support um, than any others. I've even got it here. It's the Twin Peaks. It's the Twin Peaks model in Explain Pain. 
And what that model shows, and I think that's available online quite sort of freely too, um, what that model but shows. Just listening can can actually Google it, the Twin Peaks model, and see the diagram if, if yeah. you're just you're not watching. Yeah. yeah. And that just that just shows that when you've had chronic pain, the buffer that it, how how safe it is to go into some pain because you're so well protected, you're never going to really hurt hurt something. It's unless you fall off a cliff or do some of the crazy things that you've done. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, I think, uh, you know, if people could understand that that actually fear makes pain worse, as opposed to movement making pain worse, or, or fear makes anxiety worse, or depression yeah. worse, um, you know, that that would really empower them and put the, the um, controls back in their hands. Um, Absolutely. Lots of people aren't even vaguely aware that they do have fear and that it is fear that's driving them to take this apathetic um, approach. Yeah, it's so it's so powerful. We've, we realize this. Um, I've just been involved in a large clinical trial with osteoarthritis of the knee. And the, one of the major things that stops people um, exercising is fear that they're going to wear the joint away even more right fear so fear of exercise and that's because this metaphor the wording of wear and tear is so powerful out there whereas it's it's totally wrong we should be saying move and improve or move and lube it because the evidence is so strong that if you can calm your whole system down they calm the immune system down with with diet movement etc and do a walking program that actually the cartilage on the knee will actually grow back and the juice inside the knee will become much sloppier and, and useful. Um, so, but it's getting past the, the education, getting past this, that thing first. Don't be fearful of it because you won't wear it away. I can understand why you're fearful because everyone said you'll wear and tear it and that's in the past. But no, just think of let's move it and improve it and give you a guided program to get you back. But yes, fear fear changes so much of our our behaviours and is so critical in so many disorders. And it all comes back in the end to trusting your body and trusting your own system to be able to heal itself and and not need to be cosseted. Um, because we were made to to live a long and uh, illustrious life, I think. Well, not everybody gets that uh, blessing, but to, you know, if, if we're alive, we're we're made to be living, not you know, half living. That's so true. I'm thinking of my gardening group again. I'm going to give a rural talk um, in a couple of weeks, and uh, before I gave the talk, I was asking around this little town about what people would what people would really want to get out of a talk from someone who's maybe talking about health and gardening or whatever. And I, I realized one of the things people, it was people were fearful. And one of the things were fearful of going into a nursing home or going into a care. And I realized what a powerful thing we have here. You know, the longer you garden, <laughs> then there's more, there's less chance or you'll stay away from care much, 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 much longer. And then I realized so many people are a bit fearful of gardening again, because they think they'll hurt something and they'll think they'll, you know, there's an apathy in it. So that's what I'm actually trying to 
trying to change. And it's interesting, we change it with story too. Like one of my favorite stories for elderly people gardening who are just a bit fearful of hurting their back is because they've seen an x-ray and there's flattened discs and more bone. I say, actually, I think you're moving pretty well. Your back is now actually a stable platform. The discs are flat. There's more bone in there. It's a bit stiff, whatever. I reckon you can get out and dig your roses and your zinnias and plant some carrots because that's actually a stable platform now. And even that little, we call it a little metaphor shift from something of collapsing back to a stable platform. I'll go and play bowls on that. I'll go and do something on that. Which is, um, I mean, it's it's completely opposite to what so many people are being told by their doctors. Um, you know, here in South Africa, um, if you're in the private healthcare system, the minute you have backache or neckache, you go off for an MRI scan, and uh, and as soon as you see a disc bulge, well, that's the cause of the pain. And and you know, I, I met a, a a gentleman in um in the store the other day, and and he said to me, well, I've got two disc bulges, um, uh, you know, as a, as a result of a fall. And I said to him, and when did you have this fall? And he said, two years ago. And I, I feel so sorry because the, the you know no one told him that those disc bulges are going to get. Fault. No, it's not his fault. <laughs> no, uh, exactly. And, and I'm sure you've shared data like this with your with your listeners that um, at the age of twenty, something like thirty percent of people have disc bulges, and yeah. the age of sixty, you know, we're all sitting here with bulges and whatever. But I'm quite happy. Bulges are quite are quite normal, really. You know, like a bit of a bulge in the tummy in the and, disc and there's no evidence that those bulges are causative of pain anyway because no absolutely absolutely not. not so it's one of the tragedies i mean x-rays are fabulous for the right thing and scans are fabulous for the right thing but they they have come at a cost for for people in in pain and fatigue states yeah. There, there is some though. There is uh, there's change happening. I'm well aware of um, well aware of some radiology groups who are uh, making a statement after an X-ray finding that these findings need to be taken into account with the age of the patient and normal age-related changes. Yeah, but I, I think there is that you know, once you've seen it on the scan and I mean I've even had the experience myself so I really do relate um, and yeah. of, of seeing my own disc bulges on my own scan and thinking <gasps> uh, knowing though I do um, I still find them stressful and I still think about them uh, you yeah. know when I have a right. or a neck ache completely so, understand that yes completely understand that yes um, I should know, I suppose, but I'm 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 the same. And um, from my back trauma, I had an X-ray. All I wanted to see was that there wasn't something horrible, really horrible, in there. I finally succumbed to an X-ray, and uh, my doctor said, "Would you like to see the X-ray?" I said, "No, I don't look at it. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm going to go out, keep moving, playing golf, walking, fishing, gardening." Yeah. yeah. I, I just think this is such an important message for us to get out to people that, uh, you know, don't don't get stuck with your x-rays, maybe even don't look and don't read and uh, and and just believe that you can um, yeah. carry on your life in spite of 
whatever's going That's on. You right. might be normal, normal aging, normal aging changes. Uh, people aren't told about it, but even the normal mental aging, normal mental aging changes create fear. Like things like it's quite normal for a 60 year old 65 year old to walk into a room and think oh why am i in this room to have tip of the tongue issues all the time where words don't come out and to be forgetful it's it's quite it's quite nice we we older people usually have crystallized knowledge in a certain area and sometimes it's a bit hard to multitask if that goes too far then it probably needs checking out but it's actually quite normal and I find that quite reassuring when I think oh, why did I come into this room you know you get annoyed and you think oh maybe there's something really horrible happening but no nah, just feel back lesson back less fear mm. yeah so uh, there, uh, there are quite a lot of people um, in my community who over exercise so they've taken this listening to pain um and and uh, you know knowing that it's a good thing uh to the extreme and they are you know maybe running ultra marathons and um doing four days or eight day cycling events and so on can you talk a little bit to to the effect of of that on the body yeah it's it quite difficult because for some of those people that might be fabulous fabulous so for example for the knee we know that marathoners who train but who train and and they have a um like a gentle progression in how they train actually have more cartilage on their knee than non-marathoners it doesn't wear off so for some of these people if they're training if they're training um um it's, it could be good that's what they want I, I don't have any problems with that if you want to get back to marathon running or walking huge sort of distances or whatever one of my comments though with with training is is the importance of of context and sort of variety I think is important um that's a training or activity in different in different um, places, in different environments, in different contexts, outside, inside, a variety of training, um, aerobic, anaerobic, upper limb, lower limb, to just see that it's actually spread around all of the areas of it. We use the Goldilocks approach, as many people do with exercise, good old Goldilocks, you know, what, what is ideal? Uh, let's not have too much, too hot, too little, but just right in the middle. Too little exercise won't do anything really to change, to change body, change brain, change feeling. Too much can actually overdo it, but it's finding what's right in the middle. Um, Olympic athletes use the Goldilocks sort of principle too, but we also use that for our our patients. Find a find a baseline and um, work from there. Mind you, some of our patient baselines, when someone is in, in severe trouble and might have retreated from the world, it could be using imagery, just imagining activity, imagining uh, walking, um, imagining walking in a safe place first before you're imagining walking in a less sort of dangerous place to start to build it up. Um, if you imagine if you imagine an activity, you probably use as much brain, almost as much brain as if you actually do it. So, you know, we can really grade it, I think. 
So there are some people out there who I just want to say, oh, that repetitive stuff you're doing, that's really fine. But hey, why don't you do it in a different environment or a different place or, or, or make sure you've got all the elements of it and that you're progressing correctly. And the other thing, Sue, I like to remind people that exercise is a modern invention. Intervention. It's only something we've invented recently, exercise. You think about it. You know, gyms and the like, and because people work in offices too, I, I guess. In the past, you've got all your exercise from hunting, gathering, gardening, lifting, cleaning, moving. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I love that. But, uh, you know, you've taken away, um, I think, the threat value, uh, you know, saying that actually the knee cartilage loves the training and it doesn't necessarily wear out because you're training, but uh, the variety is king. I think um, the variety we, is the king. Yeah. Yeah. We have, um, I always think it's amazing. We've tried so hard to make life easy for ourselves. So we, you know, have a washing machine to wash our clothes and a gate remote to open the gate. And, and then we have to go to the gym to do some exercise because we've taken all the exercise out of our normal life. You know, we, we go to the wishy-washy to wash our cars instead of doing it ourselves. And so we have to do so little movement in our actual lives that we have to go to the gym to do it instead. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So one last thing that I, well, there are two things I still want to chat to you about. And one of them is window of tolerance, because I think um, doing a lot of exercise um, can be much more traumatic to the body if you're also under a lot of mental stress, you know, so that it, it, the, the stressors are cumulative. And a lot of people blame it then on the exercise instead of recognizing it was the context that was causative of the um, breakdown that occurred. So can you talk about window of tolerance a little bit? No, I can't think I can offer much to what you've actually said there, Sue. I, oh, I, 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 no, I think you've really summed it up beautifully, succinctly. That, and it's not just exercise; it's it's any activity that that, that people will quickly blame the activity, what they've done, what the physio said, what the doctor said they want to do. And again, I think it's probably part of this body mind rejection out there that 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 either their problem hasn't been un, unpacked enough for them to realize that relationships and food and memories and expectations are contributing to it we would unpack that in the dim sim in the protectometer work that we actually do so that would be one way to unpack it um as an you know i've always i've always think i always change still even though i'm all trying to retire always changing behavior but um i think one of the one of the most useful things i do with people now is to get them to dig into what i call achievement emotions so no matter what that someone's doing in a pathway back to health whether it's reading something doing some exercise doing some activity so when they've stopped is to reflect on that activity and reflect and try and, and think how do they feel about it try and get a try and get a reading about how they feel is it are they exalted excited or angry upset or whatever and then try to work out 
at that particular time, why are they feeling that particular way? Quite mm. often, it'll be a beautiful achievement emotion. To explain that to somebody, I, I would say, if you've done really well, um, you'll have an achievement emotion, you get a lovely cascade of these lovely chemicals in your brain, it'll make the memory of what you've done even better, so it'll be easier to do that activity the next time. But then for someone who's got a wider view of a wider view of why they're hurting, which health professionals should be giving, so giving the, the, the psychosocial elements to it, I think that that reflection time, no matter what they do, should also incorporate that. But that's quite a skill for, for people to do. I, I ask um, clients to do it 20, at least 20 seconds, half a minute. Come on, give me that. I've told you, I want you to walk around and do this, this, but after sit, how did you go? How did you feel? My gardeners are who I might say, I want 10 minutes in the garden, do whatever you like. Okay, come back, say, how do you feel? Oh, I feel bloody terrible. Well, what was it? Oh, shit, well, the mother-in-law is staying with me or something else. So, so that self-reflection, I think, is where you kind of dig out some of these deeper issues. Yeah, I love that. Self-reflection is key. And, um, you know, I... I was treating a lady yesterday who, um, as many of my listeners, suffers from sexual pain and, from, um, from? and sexual pain, yeah. vaginismus. Yeah, yeah. And her response to her sexual pain long before she went for help was to say, I'm just going to push through. I'm just going to push through. And um, she tried that. And of course, the pain crescendoed and crescendoed and got worse and worse until eventually it was impossible to push through any longer. Um, I think at any point, had, had she been able to use that skill of reflection, she may have been able to say, hang on, this isn't working, yeah. um, and be able to say, what else should I be doing? But I, I yeah. think that, as you rightly say, is a real skill to be able to say, how do I use the information, not to run and hide in my cave, but to yeah. actually talk about what I'm doing and, and do something somewhat differently. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was devastating to see how she's harmed herself and her relationship yeah. and her self-confidence and everything by just keeping on bashing on towards the pain instead of reflecting. Yeah. But it's a difficult thing to do to be able to reflect like it, that. It, it, it is a difficult thing to do, but... Um... I think it's a skill we health professionals have to have to pass on, I think, and 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 let someone know how important it is um, to self-reflect and to have that achievement or non-achievement emotion or or thinking of to get that deeper, get that deeper sort of knowledge of of what's happening. Yeah. I mean, if I'd literally put one thing I really wanted you to say in this talk, it would have been that. So thank you for saying that, because I just think um, if we're not ever taking a moment to stop and check what's going on, then uh, we leave ourselves so Absolutely. Powerful. And, and, and self-reflection is probably the key thing in well, the movement we call it here, the self-regulated learning. So we to, to to help people regulate their own their own learning. Um, the other thing I didn't say in my sort of background is that um, there's a world out there that hasn't really been introduced to to health, and that's educational psychology. 
And it's like a big silo, the world of education out there. And it offers so much to, so much to, to, to health. And um, the notion of achievement emotions, and that, that's where that's come from, the world of, the world of education. Um, the world of the world of changing people's beliefs it's it's not easy is it sue but the the key thing is when somebody is uh it's easy to change youngsters at in in the school they've got more of a blank slate but you and i see and your listeners too when you go to a health professional you've come with your own ideas and conceptions and misconceptions and you've got this well-built well-built system in your brain of what you think is right and uh, and sometimes when we suggest something simple like well maybe your pain isn't all to do with your back but maybe it's to do with your brain and some of your feelings and some of the thoughts um we understand that that's not easy it's not easy to take on board. I mean, no. I even find my own beliefs hard to change. So, you know, course, knowing yeah. this is our yeah. 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 Yep. I could stand and talk to you all day, and I'm so glad you can't retire because I really <laughs> don't think the world can afford to let you go. Um, but have you got any little nuggets that you'd love to leave with um with the listeners? I know you've given um, many, many any yeah, one, there's any many, 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 many. I just, from our world, from our world of research and clinic and, and knowledge of brain change and whatever, I just think there's so much more hope, hope out there if you can get access to it. I think, and I think um, I find myself with clients, you know, giving them hope in someone who might have had something for five, 10, 20 years. And it's a realistic, it's a realistic hope now. I think this enormous bioplasticity, we call it, or the potential for change, which is within us all, um, with just a little bit of help, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of guidance, we can really make that, make that far more powerful. I think for older people too, who are, are listening, that you don't have to you don't have to slow down or stop just because you're old. Because you're old doesn't mean you'll have more pain. In fact, older people have less pain than a lot of younger people. So pain isn't a, a sentence to say, oh, I'm old, I've got pain, I'm going to have it forever. No, no, no. You can live a very, very happy, pain-free, older life as well too. I could go on and on, but I get a bit excited here. But I think it probably comes down to, to I'm excited about the world of pain anxiety treatment my colleagues are in research and in the clinic and i just hope some of that excitement comes over to your listeners too it certainly does and what i just find so amazing about you david is that you are able to take your the complex constructs that you've researched and and your inf infinite understanding of the complex nervous system and make it simple so that people can actually use it in their lives. So uh, it's just such a skill and talent. And thank you for doing that um, so that people can tweak the way they live their lives and feel tweak great. the way they live their life. Thank you, Sue. Great to be here. Great to be How can people get hold of you if they want to? Read you, find your books? Oh, I'm retired, remember? I'm retired. But um, <laughs> for people, the... Um, um, there's a couple of things that might help, particularly people in rural areas. The pain revolution movement 
um, here has a lot of um, fact sheets and, and things. That's painrevolution.org. That's run by my colleague, Laura Mosley, and a number here where we, we travel around the country and talk to uh, um, people in rural towns. So painrevolution.org is, is probably one of the best things. I always say to people, be very careful what you read online. It's probably best to look at websites that have a .org or .gov at the end of it. Uh, I think there's a lot of misconception, misconception out there. But I think to sum up some of the things I've said, I think that what you'll find on painrevolution.org would be particularly helpful. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, David. And hopefully we can have another conversation again in the future and uh, hear what's going on for you uh, as you enjoy your retirement. Good time. on you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, South Africa. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Route to Wellbeing. I hope that this episode has been really useful and helpful for you. Thank you to the team who brought it into being and to our special guests who so generously gave of their time and their insights. Please remember to share it with all in your network who you think it can help. Sharing help that really helps is what makes the world go round.